If you have your Bibles or on your devices, would you mind turning to Mark 12? It will be in verses 38 to 44. So Mark 12, verses 38 to 44. So one of the great objections to the Christian faith is that of hypocrisy. Time and time again, our news feeds are flooded with new allegations, new investigations, and new confirmations of yet another church leader falling into a scandal of sin. Time and time again, there's been a disconnect between the image that Christians portray in public or online versus how they're living in private. And time and time again, too many people have been let down, hurt, or abused by so-called Christ followers who did not practice what they preached. Hypocrisy. Now, while hypocrisy alone isn't an altogether sufficient reason to reject the Christian faith, in our culture, a culture that prizes authenticity, Christian hypocrisy casts serious doubts on the claims that we make. Jesus himself said of his followers, you will recognize them by their fruits. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want to know who are truly my people, look at their actions. Look at how they love. Look at how they treat people. Look at how they live. Because true Christian faith is observable. It can be seen. True Christianity not only changes our eternities for the future, it changes our behaviors and attitudes and actions in the present. True Christianity should make us more loving, more forgiving, and more patient. It should make us more eager to work for justice and truth and for the good of our neighbors. True Christianity should make us look more like Christ. And of course, there's been and there's continuing to be a number of attacks on religious hypocrisy. But the great irony is that when you search back through the most bitter attacks of religious hypocrisy throughout history, you'd struggle to find anyone more scathing, more repulsed, more enraged than its greatest opponent, Jesus Christ. His harshest statements his most vicious condemnations, and his scathing rebukes were aimed specifically at the hypocritical religious leaders of his day. He despised religious hypocrisy, particularly because religious hypocrisy almost always oppresses, manipulates, and exploits the most vulnerable, needy, and hurting in our societies. And that's the heart of our passage this morning. Here at the end of Mark 12, we see that Jesus gives us a warning against the teachers of the law. And it's a warning against their practice of false religion, a false religion of pride and hypocrisy. And secondly, in sharp contrast to that, we see that our passage ends by Jesus commending the actions of a poor widow, commending her practice of what true discipleship, true devotion, and yes, true religion looks like. So with your Bibles open or your smartphones open, would you turn with me again to Mark 12, verse 38 to 44. So as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat, sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins with only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. 
They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had. And so our passage this morning is structured around Jesus' teaching on false and true religion. So firstly, a warning against false religion in verses 38 to 40. And secondly, a display of true discipleship in verses 41 to 44. So would you look with me again at verse 38? A warning against false religion. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. Now here, Jesus' teaching comes in the form of a warning, and it's a shocking one at that, actually. It's a warning against the teachers of the law. Now, perhaps one would have expected Jesus to warn his disciples against people who posed obvious physical threats to them. Watch out for the thieves. Watch out for the robbers. Or perhaps you'd warn them against the known enemies of the Jewish people. Watch out for the imperial guards. Watch out for the tax collectors. Or perhaps you'd warn them against their political or religious opponents. Watch out for the zealots. Watch out for the Herodians. Surely these would be the kinds of people that Jesus would warn his disciples to beware of. But no. Jesus warns his disciples, watch out for the teachers of the law. In other words, watch out for the pastors. Watch out for the scribes. Watch out for the theologians, the biblical scholars, the teachers and preachers. Jesus is warning his disciples, saying, watch out for the religious leaders of the day, the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law who would spend all their time poring over biblical texts, respected scholars, formally trained with incredible knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, Orthodox men of honor, authority, and influence in their society and in community. And yet, of these very people, Jesus says to his disciples, watch out. The question becomes why. Why specifically the teachers of the law, and why is Jesus warning us against them? What's at the heart of the issue? Well, the issue wasn't their preaching. It wasn't their doctrine. The issue wasn't that they were unorthodox. They were actually very orthodox. We might even refer to them as the ancient conservatives of their day, or more likely, the ancient fundamentalists. But Jesus isn't referring to his preaching here. He's referring to their practice. The issue was with their practice. You see, instead of being marked by humility and sincerity, these teachers of the law were marked by pride and hypocrisy. And here, Mark describes for us the two ugly characteristics of false religion, the two ugly characteristics of these teachers of the law, Pride and hypocrisy. So firstly, pride. Would you look with me again at verses 38 to 39? Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. The teachers of the law were characterized by pride. They like to flow, walk around in flowing robes. Now, while the rest of the Jewish people wore ordinary colored or multicolored robes, these teachers would wear long, white, flowing robes adorned with tassels, their significance and their superiority on display through the clothes that they wore. Pride. They liked to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. Now, they were social superiors. And as social superiors in an honor-based society, these teachers would be greeted with titles of honor wherever they went. Now, an ordinary lesser person would have to stop their work as they saw them coming, stand to their feet, and greet them any and every time they walked past. And while marketplaces, they were full of people, and these provided many opportunities for these teachers to receive the recognition that they so thought they deserved, or the recognition that they so craved. Pride. The same could be true of worship gatherings. They liked to have the most important seats in synagogues. 
While the ordinary lesser people would have to sit on the floor in the synagogue, these teachers sat on benches, greater status, better seats, pride. And lastly, they like to have the places of honor at banquets. Now, when going to feasts, almost the equivalent of modern-day wedding receptions, these teachers would never need to check the board for the names and the numbers. Why would they do that? They knew exactly where they were sitting. They were sitting at the top table, the best table, the table of honor. They were the teachers of the law, after all. Pride. They wore the right clothes. They were greeted with reverence in the market. They had the position of prominence in the synagogue and the place of honor at feasts. And yet at the root of all of it, says Jesus, is a false religion characterized by pride, status, and self. So he says, watch out for pride. Secondly, hypocrisy. Look with me again at verse 40. Speaking of the teachers of the law here, he says, they devour widows' houses and for show make lengthy prayers. The teachers of the law were characterized by hypocrisy. Now, if these teachers were part of the social elite of Jesus' day, widows were part of the social underclass. They had no status. They had little means of financial support. They were socially powerless and honorless in a society that emphasized status and honor. They were vulnerable. They were needy. But significantly, they were to be protected under biblical law. For example, would you hear these words from God in Exodus 22? This is Yahweh speaking, giving his law through Moses at Mount Sinai. Exodus 22 verse 22 reads, Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. These are words from God himself. Harsh and severe, yes. But as you look into these words, you begin to see the very heart of God for the vulnerable, the needy, and the destitute. This law and the many others like it in Scripture underscore the importance of orphans and widows to the heart of God and his people, Israel back then, the Jews of of Jesus' day, and the church now, the people of God, are meant to share his heart for them too. They're to care for, to protect, to provide for the least of these, because to God, they are of greatest value. But the teachers of the law were devouring widows' houses. What seems to be taking place here was that these teachers were demanding excessive financial contributions, excessive tithes to be paid by these widows who could barely afford to pay for their own basic needs. These teachers insisted on tithes, money given to religious institutions, of up to 30% of one's living wage. 30%. And that's on top of an already heavy taxes levied by the Roman government. Essentially, these teachers were bleeding these widows dry, and they were doing so in the name of religious duty. Would you picture it with me? These widows had little to no income. They had little to no family. They had to pay exorbitant amounts of taxes to an oppressive foreign government. And now on top of all of that, the people who were supposed to care for them, the people who were supposed to protect them, the people who were even supposed to provide for them are the ones devouring what little funds they had left. What it is, is an absolute abuse of power. These social, economic, and religious elite abusing these poor, vulnerable, widowed women 
and doing so in the name of religion. It's sick. It's twisted. It's sin. It's false religion. And yet we read on, they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. The teachers of the law who were abusing these widows, they were the same people up front on a Sunday, praying the longest, loftiest prayers in perfect theological and religious language. But it was all a show. It was all a lie. While they were P-R-A-Y praying for these widows on Sunday, they were P-R-E-Y praying on these widows on Monday. Hypocrisy. But our Lord doesn't deal kindly with it. I wonder if you'd hear these words of Jesus in Matthew 23. So then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples that were around him, he said, watch out for the teachers of the law. Do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger. Everything they do is for people to see. They wear the finest robes and make tassels, the tassels on their garments as long as possible. They love the places of honor at feasts and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But Jesus says, but woe to you, teachers of the law, you hypocrites. You give your tithes, you do your religious duties, but you've neglected the more important things of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You blind guides, you're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. On the outside, you appear as, to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you not escape being condemned to hell? These are the words of our Lord Jesus. Confronted with the sinful wickedness of false religion, Jesus doesn't shrink back. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't turn a blind eye. No, he calls it what it is. A false religion of self-centered pride, religious hypocrisy, and social injustice. Sin. And to these teachers of the law, Jesus declares at the end of verse 40, these men will be punished most severely. And so they should. And so they should. So how do we respond to Jesus' teaching here? I think it's only appropriate to firstly say sorry. Perhaps you're, you're not yet a Christ follower, you're not a Christ follower here this morning, and like so many others, you've been repulsed by the hypocrisy that you've seen in the church. Or perhaps you're back in church, or you've stayed in church. But like so many others, you've been hurt by the hypocrisy and sinful actions of Christian leaders. Hurt by men. And let's be honest, it's mostly men. Men who taught one thing on Sunday but lived another on Monday. Men who used their positions of power to abuse the vulnerable, the needy, and the hurting. Men who were selfish, who were cowards, who were wicked. And to you, I only think it needs to be said from up front. Uh, to you, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. 
my prayer for you this morning would be that you would see our Savior, that you would see Jesus, that you would hear his words, and that you'd begin the slow process of learning to trust again. My prayer is that you would see his anger, that you would see his repulsion at sin, and that you would see his heart for you, that he's tender, he's caring, and he's safe. My prayer is that you would see his life, that you would see his integrity, his compassion, his pure and holy love, and that you would see his cross, where he himself suffered injustice, where he experienced pain, and when he was the victim of abuse. My prayer is that you would know that he knows, that he knows your pain, that he knows what you've been through, that he knows you. And lastly, my prayer is that you will know that he promises that every injustice, every abuse, every sin committed against you will be dealt with, that what you went through was not in vain, that justice will be served when he comes again. My prayer is that you would see Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, and in him you would find hope, in him you'd find healing, and in him you'd find freedom. But for me, for now, I'm sorry. To you, my brothers and sisters, I think the immediate application of our passage is quite clear. It's a warning against teachers and leaders in the church. Teachers and leaders in the church who truly are not Christ-like or God-honoring. It's a warning against their pride and hypocrisy. And church, if you see it, run away from it. Watch out for false religious leaders. But lastly, I think we would be mistaken if we left here this morning only seeing the ugly characteristics of false religion in the teachers of the law, or only hearing Jesus' warning against their pride and their hypocrisy without letting the mirror of God's word reflect back on us. Because practically, this warning this morning is a warning against us too. It's a warning against our pride and our hypocrisy. It's a warning against the false religion that we practice. And it's a call, the call, and the call to response of our passage this morning is that we would see the sin in our lives and that we would repent of it right now. So, brother and sister, here's some questions. Has your faith become more about you and less about God? Has your faith become more about status? and less about service? Is there a disconnect between what you say and how you actually live? Is there a disconnect between the image you portray in public or online and the true you living in private, which only you and your family know? Brother and sister, do you find it harder to confess your sins to other people and to God? Would we see our sin for what it actually is? A false faith, a destructive faith, and at times an abuse of faith. And would we hear Jesus' warning? And would you repent today? A warning against false religion. Secondly, a display of true discipleship. In your Bibles, would you look again with me at verse 41? So Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. So Jesus and his disciples are now in the temple precincts. I wonder if you can picture a large open air hall 
filled with many people coming in and out. It's almost the equivalent of a modern-day mall. If you can picture Long Beach Mall, the Jerusalem Temple Courts. Now, in these temple precincts, historians tell us that there were 13 large offering boxes interspersed around the hall. And they were designated for different things, different needs, different opportunities so that you can give to different things. For example, some were designated for tax owed to the temple, while others were for free will offerings, where money would voluntarily be put in for various purposes. Maintenance, for instance. But very interestingly, if you can see this picture up here, it's not the greatest, but it'll do. They had the opening of these offering boxes was shaped in the form of a metal trumpet. They were literally called the trumpets. So if you can see, there's almost like a long pipe, long narrow pipe going into like a wide bell or bass, and then that's the offering box right at the bottom. So long pipe, wide bass into the offering box. But why I tell you this is because these trumpets were metal. And because they were metal, and because the offerings that would be made were metal coins as well, it was relatively possible for someone to deduce what people were putting into the offering box by the sound that their offering made when tinkling in the trumpets. So the bigger the sound, the bigger the offering. You can imagine it sounding something like they would walk up, Something like that, right? Um, so people are moving in and out. They would come in and they would put their money into the temple offering boxes and then they'd leave. And while all of this is happening, Jesus is sitting and he's watching. What's more, Mark tells us that many rich people were coming and they threw in large amounts into these offering boxes. Can you picture the scene one by one? Rich person after rich person would walk up to the offering box, deposit large sums of money into it, and with large amounts of money came large amounts of sound. Here it comes. The second person would come. Ding, 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 ding. The third person would come. Ding, 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 ding. And everyone would stop. Everyone would turn around. And they would stare and say, wow, that was a lot. That was a lot of noise. That was a lot of money. Now, as all of this is going on, Mark tells us in verse 42 that a poor widow comes. And she puts in two very small copper coins with only a few cents. Can you picture it? The person in front of her has just made this huge crescendo of noise when they put in their offering. And then she comes. She approaches the offering box, quietly, ashamedly, keeping to herself. She tentatively puts her two very small copper coins in the box. barely making a noise. The people probably wouldn't have even noticed if they weren't paying attention. She put in two very small copper coins with only a few cents, and I wonder if you can see this contrast here. Here are these rich people, one way or another, loudly or proudly, putting in 200 rand, 500 rand, 1,000 rand at a time into this offering box. But this poor widow comes in and puts in an equivalent of three rand. Three rand, a 64th of a day's wage, of barely any value. And yet, witnessing all of this, Jesus says something remarkable in verse 43. I wonder if you saw it when we read it. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. Having seen what's just taken place, Jesus says to his disciples, Do you see that widow over there? 
Yep, the one who's just put in three, and yes, it was only three rand. The one who barely made any noise as she did. Yeah, her. She's put more into that offering box than all the other rich people, including all those who put 200, 500, or 1,000 rand in. She has put in more. And the disciples think, what? What is Jesus saying? What is Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus is doing what he's been doing all along. He's challenging human valuation. He's challenged the way in which people think about what they see in front of them. Because the common assumption then, as I'm sure the common assumption is now, was that the contribution made by this widow, if it wasn't completely irrelevant, was certainly inconsequential. It was so little that it wouldn't even make a dent. It wouldn't even matter, but not to Jesus. No, Jesus calls his disciples and says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. Now, clearly three rand is not worth more than 200 rand. You couldn't bring up one of your kids and say, here's three rand, but it's actually 100 rand. Or here's three rand, but it's actually 1,000 rand. They would just laugh and say, no, it's not. So how can a woman who puts in the equivalent of three rand be putting in more than people who are making these substantial financial contributions? That's the question of verse 43. And the answer is pretty clear in verse 44. Jesus says, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others, but they all gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. Jesus is teaching here, his disciples, that the rich gave what they would never miss, while this poor widow gave what she could not afford. They gave out of their excess, but she out of her lack. They gave out of their abundance, but she out of her scarcity. The rich gave what amounted to spare change for them, and it made this big noise in the offering box. But she gave up all her change and made no noise. Essentially, Jesus is teaching his disciples here that the rich gave a contribution that they could not afford, while this poor widow gave a sacrifice that she couldn't, but she did anyway. I heard one pastor explain it this way, and look, it's not quite perfect, and honestly, it's a little silly, but I think it illustrates the point that Jesus is trying to make here, but please, you'll have to be sharp with this one, okay? It's the story of the chicken and the pig. I wonder if you've heard of it, the story of the chicken and the pig? No? Um, so the chicken and the pig decide to go into business get together. The chicken says, why don't we go into business? The pig says, well, what kind of business do you have in mind? And the chicken says, the bacon and egg business. Uh, you can explain the chicken and egg. No, it's okay. And then we catch on a bit late, or we laugh and we chuckle. But then we think about it. And we sit back and we tell our children and our grandchildren, well, but look what the pig has to say. He says, well, not so fast, chicken. For you, that's a contribution that you can afford. For me, it's a sacrifice that I can't. For you, it's only a part of you. For me, it's my whole life. And I think that's the point Jesus is trying to make here. He's saying to his disciples, guys, did you just see what happened? Do you see this poor widow? Do you see what she's just done? Out of her poverty, she has put in everything. She's sacrificed everything, all that she had to live on, every last cent. She's given it up. She's given up everything to God. To God, because that's what it is, right, in the text. You see, her last, very last cent, her livelihood, her life, given as a sacrificial offering to God, put into that offering box. She didn't only give the parts of her that she wanted to, or the, the parts that she thought she could afford. No, 
She put in everything, her finances, her security, her future certainty. She gave everything to God. Where the false religion of the teachers of the law was characterized by pride and hypocrisy, this faith of this poor widow is characterized by trust and by sacrifice. Trust in God despite her circumstances. Trust in God despite her lack. Trust in God to care for her, to protect her, and to provide for her. And the trust to give everything. To give her whole life as a living sacrifice to God. This is what true discipleship looks like. You see, the story of the widow's offering is a story about giving. But I don't think it's primarily a story about giving money. I think the story of the widow's offering is primarily about giving yourself. It's about giving all of yourself and giving all of yourself to God. Jesus is illustrating here that God doesn't only want some part of you. He doesn't only want what you think you can give him or what you want to give him. No, he doesn't want your stuff. He wants you, all of you, everything. This is what true discipleship looks like. It looks like denying yourself, denying worldly comfort, denying worldly ambition, denying worldly security, and giving it all up to God. It looks like taking up your cross and dying to yourself, dying to pride, dying to hypocrisy, and dying to sin, and giving it all up to God. It looks like following God wherever he leads, giving it all up to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus gave it all up for you. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus gave up the riches of heaven to live as the poor son of a widowed mother. Jesus gave up the comfort of heaven to suffer pain, abuse, and injustice. Jesus gave up his life, bearing the wrath and punishment of God for all our pride, all our hypocrisy, all our sin. He gave up everything for you, and he died. And he rose. And now he gives us new life. He gives us a new identity, a new family of the people of God, a new future. He gives us himself. Through his spirit who lives in us, changing us, shaping us, and conforming us to be more like him. He gives us present help in our sufferings, in our pain, and in our loss. He gives us all of himself, holding nothing back. And all he asks is the same of you. This is what true discipleship looks like, following the author and perfecter of your faith as living sacrifices to God who gave up everything you. And when you realize this, we stop asking how much. How much must I give? How much does God want? No, we stop asking how much. We start asking how much more. How much more does he love us? How much more has he given us? And then surely how much more can we give to him? Christ gave all of himself for us that we might give all of ourselves to him for his glory and for our joy. Would you pray with me? As we pray, maybe the music team can come up and respond if they want to. 
I think it's time to do some business with God and to ask yourself some questions, just you and him, in reflective prayer. Maybe you're on the beach with the vast ocean of God ahead of you, all his plans and purposes. He's asking you to jump in. What are you holding back? What are you holding God at arm's length with? What is he asking you to sacrifice? Where is God calling you to trust him, to sacrifice to him, to speak out or even ask for help? Where do you need to repent? Where in your life does your actions need to match your words? And where do you need to follow Jesus, no matter where he leads? Heavenly Father, we are grateful. Grateful for you, for your character, for your life, for your justice, for your integrity. We're so thankful for your tender care and forgiveness that comes with you. That, Lord, all our hypocrisy, all our pride was paid for by you. So, Lord, would we be a people of repentance? Would we be a people of humility and integrity? And would we be a people who, in response of all that you've given us, give all of us to you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.